I'm Anna Rothschild, and this is Podcast 19 from 538. I know the safety of the COVID vaccine is on a lot of people's minds these days, as multiple pharmaceutical companies release promising reports about the effectiveness of their COVID vaccines, it feels like a cure for this pandemic may be in sight. But for many people, injecting a brand new scientific discovery into their body doesn't sit well. There are anti-vaxxers, of course, who are skeptical of the long-term health consequences of well-proven vaccines and who will likely have concerns about a COVID-19 vaccine no matter how well the trials went. And there are less dogmatic people who might just be skeptical of a vaccine developed so fast and with so many political crosswinds. So how can we be sure that the cure won't be worse than the disease? How do regulators decide what an acceptable side effect is? And what would happen if someone did have a serious reaction to the COVID vaccine after it was released? Today, we're devoting our whole show to vaccine safety. It was totally painless. The only thing I had was arm pain at the injection site in my shoulder, so nothing special. Ian Hayden is calmly talking about one of the bravest things a person can do to help end a pandemic. I am in the Moderna phase one vaccine trial. Did you talk to people in your life about the decision? Like, did anyone try to talk you out of it? Nobody discouraged me or anything like that. I would say, you know, out of everyone, it was my mom who, who wanted to talk about it the most. You know, she had the concerns that a mom would have, but she certainly supports me, as do all my loved ones. So no, no one tried to talk me out of it. In Seattle, on an ordinary spring day, Ian had the very extraordinary experience of being one of the first people in the world to receive a coronavirus vaccine. He was in an early trial of Moderna's vaccine that was done to look at safety and weed out unsafe doses. So he knew it was possible that he could have a bad reaction. After getting a first dose on April 28th, he treated himself to some Thai food on the way home. Uh, it was a delicious uh, garlic chicken recipe. But when he received the second dose four weeks later, things got a little too spicy. I noticed actually that the arm pain came on a little bit sooner than it had with the first shot. And it was around 10 o'clock, so it would have been 12 hours exactly after I got the, the second shot. Um, I, I started getting chills. Um, and I ended up waking up in the middle of the night with sort of uh, everything at 11. Um, I had a high fever, quite a high fever. I was nauseous, I had muscle aches. Ian spent the night in urgent care, where he received fluids and painkillers. So we left at about 7 in the morning and got home and immediately fell asleep to catch up on the, the night of sleep we had missed before. So what happened after you, you got home and woke up? So we rested a bit, and I ended up feeling super nauseous all of a sudden. So I actually threw up. And pretty shortly after that, I also fainted. My girlfriend had heard me throwing up and came to check on me. And luckily, she sort of caught me as I was going down. To be clear, most people in Moderna's phase one trial did not have Ian's experience. Apart from testing vaccine safety, the trial also tested different vaccine doses. Ian had received the highest dose, which was 10 times stronger than the lowest. 
And even though he had an intense reaction, it didn't last too long. About a day of feeling ill. Basically all the symptoms, the fever, the muscle aches, the fatigue, was, was basically gone. Based on how Ian and a few other people reacted to this highest dose, Moderna decided not to continue with it. In their phase two and three trials, the company included only the two lower doses of the vaccine. Now, those trials are coming to a close. On November 16th, Moderna released preliminary results from their phase three COVID vaccine trial, indicating that their vaccine is 94.5% effective. And according to their press release, there were no significant safety concerns, just some short-term fatigue, muscle pain, headache, and overall achiness. Judy Stokes is a participant in the phase three trial. And I actually had only a sore arm with the first vaccine and a day of feeling kind of strange and sluggish and exhausted after the second one. Do you think that you got the real deal and not the placebo? (laughs) I do think it, but I don't know. You know, I've joked about maybe I was having myself a, but just a placebo reaction. Moderna's not the only company with big vaccine news. This week, Pfizer and BioNTech put out a press release saying that not only is their coronavirus vaccine 95% effective, it's also passed the FDA's safety milestone for an emergency use authorization. That means they'll be applying to get their vaccine out to the public soon. Efficacy is one thing, but many people hesitant to adopt a newly discovered COVID-19 vaccine will also be concerned about how we really know that a vaccine is safe. To answer that question, I called up Dr. Katherine Stevenson. I am an infectious diseases physician. I work at Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center. I also uh, run a whole bunch of our vaccine trials out of, with my affiliation with Harvard Medical School. Full disclosure, Dr. Stevenson is associated with the Johnson & Johnson and Novavax coronavirus vaccine trials through her place of work. Can you give our audience sort of a quick reminder of how safety is studied throughout the clinical trial process? Sure, so vaccines are studied very similarly to other new interventions in that they go through set stages of development. And the typical flow is that phase one is simple um, safety. We call those first in human trials. They're usually very small, maybe 30 to 50 people. There you're gonna be looking at um, what is the optimal dose that gives the least number of side effects. Again, this is the type of trial Ian Hayden was in. And then when you go into phase two, that's when you expand say 300 to 500 people. And there you're looking at a broader group of people to see if you pick up additional safety issues, um, as well as looking at now some questions like, does it look like it might work? So once the trials expand their reach, scientists are watching out for safety and whether people in the trial actually make antibodies for the virus in question. Phase three, you feel pretty good about your vaccine. You feel comfortable giving it to say 30 to 50,000 people. Um, And here though, you are still looking for safety um, because you have a much more diverse population of people in a big study like that. And so you're looking for more rare events. Um, But the point of a phase three study is to see at that point whether or not your vaccine actually works. So when a vaccine is licensed, how do we decide what constitutes an acceptable adverse event? 
for vaccines, our tolerance for side effects is pretty low because most people who get a vaccine are, they typically, you know, are healthy and they don't actually have the disease yet. So our threshold for what we'll tolerate is lower than say, um, you know, if you have cancer and you have terminal cancer, uh, and you're going to try a new therapy and it's really aggressive chemotherapy and radiation, well, most people will say, okay, it's worth it to me if that's going to help me survive. So it's a different calculus. There are certain effects many people feel after getting a vaccine. And those are these kind of viral-like symptoms that you get, and they tend to go away within a day or two. And that's considered very acceptable for a vaccine to cause those type of symptoms because they have no long-lasting impact on you. What are some things that are considered sort of unacceptable adverse events when you're creating a new vaccine? So anything that isn't immediately reversed or transient. Things that are more permanent like uh, severe liver abnormalities that end up with you know chronic liver disease leading to cirrhosis, I mean, that would be something um, unacceptable or anything that might lead to significant disability. So I would say kind of reversibility is a big factor in whether something is, is considered acceptable. Even after a vaccine gets licensed because no major adverse events were found, scientists monitor the vaccinated population for side effects. If clinical trials are so good, why do we need post-approval monitoring? Well, clinical trials are great, and I love them, but I'm biased. But um, they, one of the questions you have to ask about a clinical trial is, are the results generalizable? So what that means is, are the people who are in the trial, do they represent everybody who's getting the product? And that's been a really big issue um, for all types of interventions and definitely for vaccines to make sure that there's a diverse group of people in a study, you know, representing all ages, representing uh, all races and ethnicities, different geographical regions is incredibly critical. This has been a major question about the COVID vaccines. We don't yet have all the data about how well different demographic groups were represented in the various phase three trials. But Judy may have been recruited, at least in part, because she's in a high risk group. You know, I'm an older woman and I have other conditions, high blood pressure, heart disease. I was 68 years old at the time. I didn't know that my, whether my age and conditions would mean I'm not a good candidate. Turns out it means I'm the kind of person they wanted. They wanted to test on people like me. Clinical trials and post-approval monitoring are extremely rigorous processes. Moderna, for example, will be following Judy for two full years, periodically taking blood samples to check her antibody levels. Nevertheless, every year there are a very small number of people who have serious long-term reactions to licensed vaccines. You'll often hear about these sorts of cases if someone is trying to convince you that getting a vaccine isn't safe. But it's not that simple. To learn more about this, I called up Renee Gentry, the director of the Vaccine Injury Litigation Clinic at George Washington University Law School. She represents clients who believe they've been injured by a vaccine. Vaccine injuries significant enough to make it into my program are rare. Uh, you know, millions of doses of vaccines are given every year, and right now there are about 3,000 cases in our court. So 3,000 cases out of millions of administrations is very rare. 
In some cases, the few people who suffer vaccine injuries may have an allergic reaction or an unknown genetic predisposition that makes them more susceptible to a serious adverse effect. And in many cases, these adverse events are things that the actual illness causes in far greater numbers. Anything that the wild virus can cause, typically speaking, the vaccine can also cause, but usually to a less degree, less extent. For example, one in every thousand children who get sick with the measles will develop encephalitis or brain swelling. In comparison, in the nearly five decades of giving the measles, mumps, and rubella vaccine, there have been only three reported cases. I think many times when people fear vaccine injury, what they're fearing are like brain injuries, um, paralysis. How common are adverse events like that? Again, overall, vaccine injuries are rare, so they're not common. Um, the most one that you see normally these days is Guillain-Barre syndrome following the flu shot. And that's even on if you get your flu shot and you look at the consent form, typically it'll say if you have Guillain-Barre syndrome, don't do this. Guillain-Barre is a rare condition that can lead to paralysis. Most patients recover, but it can take months. And again, Guillain-Barre can also be caused by actually getting the flu itself. According to Gentry, injury claims like this are far less common than shoulder injuries from getting a vaccine. In fact, shoulder injuries make up about 70% of vaccine injury cases these days. Usually, if someone thinks they've been injured by a vaccine, they don't sue the pharmaceutical company. Instead, they petition a governmental program called the National Vaccine Injury Compensation Program, or VICP. Why was the VICP created in the first place? In the mid-1980s, there were some there were cases of children having seizures following the DPT vaccine. At the time, it was the whole cell pertussis vaccine, diphtheria, pertussis, tetanus vaccine. Um, and they would have fevers, and then they would get what's called residual seizure disorder, devastating injuries to these children. By the way, a quick side note, we no longer use that vaccine for diphtheria, pertussis, and tetanus. The ones we use today in the U.S. are much safer. Several of those parents sued the pharmaceutical companies at the time, and a couple of them won. And the pharmaceutical companies then essentially did a litigative risk analysis. What is it going to cost us to defend these lawsuits? And essentially overnight, they increased their prices of vaccines to reflect that. In some instances, extraordinary increases in the cost of vaccines. Doctors complained to the government. The government said to pharma, you can't really do that. You know, we need to have vaccines. And pharma said we either can account for litigative risk or we're not going to make vaccines. It's too expensive. And so Congress, together with the pharmaceutical companies and parents of injured children, put this compensation program together. And what it does is it shields pharmaceutical companies from lawsuit for vaccines that are covered in the Vaccine Injury Compensation Program. It allows, to, it was supposed to design to encourage the development of new vaccines in a safe manner, and it'll also allow those rare individuals that are injured by vaccines to be fully compensated. Basically, this fund is a way to incentivize pharmaceutical companies to make vaccines because they are seen as such a necessary public health measure, and the risks to patients are typically very small. If you claim a vaccine injury, and the injury is something that is a known rare adverse event, like a shoulder injury or Guillain-Barre, the fund will provide compensation as long as the type and timing of your injury meets certain criteria. 
We'll hopefully soon be rolling out a vaccine for COVID-19. If people think they've been injured by that vaccine, would they need to petition the VICP or would it be something else? No, it's and that's an excellent question because this is something that we're very concerned about right now. The COVID vaccine is considered a pandemic vaccine. Because of that, there is a program called the PREP Act in Congress, and that established the countermeasures program. It includes vaccines that are created for pandemics, you know, and I think the, the issue was they would assume that the pandemic vaccines were not going to be widely administered. The problem is this one's going to be widely administered. According to Gentry, this is a misstep that could hurt both patients and overall confidence in immunization campaigns. The countermeasures program makes it much harder to get compensated and doesn't allow you to have an attorney. We're already hearing from scientific experts that are like, you know, COVID's not going to go away. It's going to be here and we're going to have to figure out how to deal with it. And so, you know, like we're like, you want people to take this vaccine. You've got to give them an appropriate compensation program. Gentry herself does get vaccinated and recommends childhood vaccinations to her family members. But I was curious. Will you get a COVID vaccine when it comes out? Ultimately, I don't know yet. I, you know, certainly recommending it for other people. I, you know, I know that people are going to have to get it. I am privileged that if I get sick, I can stay home. I can, you know, I can be isolated. I can do things like that. And I have health insurance. And the likelihood is, you know, yes, that, you know, but I think I would just wait a little bit. You never want to be the first one in line, I guess. Ian Hayden, however, doesn't regret being first in line. Despite his bad reaction, he's still glad he participated since it helped Moderna get the right dosage. That means something to me. You know, it lets me know that, uh, you know, this is the reason why we do these safety trials. This is the reason why vaccine development takes as long as it does, because you don't know how something's going to behave in the human body. And once you get the information, you need to adjust. There is one wrinkle to this story that you might be interested, which is my mom is a phase three volunteer, also in the Moderna trial. And who's Ian's mom? Well, I am Judy Stokes, and uh, Ian Hayden is my youngest of four sons, and he is also in the clinical trial. He started first. That's right. Judy, from earlier, that's Ian's mom. She signed up after Ian had his bad reaction to the high-dose vaccine. What made you decide to volunteer? Well, you know, I've been thinking about this. If it weren't for Ian and my connection to Ian and following the trial the way we've been doing, I don't know if I would have signed up, merely because it wouldn't have come to mind and come in in front of my awareness the way it did. You know, there's a lot of skepticism about vaccines in general and about a COVID vaccine in particular. Having gone through this experience, what would you tell people about getting vaccinated for COVID? That's, it's interestingly ironic that my current partner is a, was, has been an anti-vaxxer. <laughs> I'm, I, I, I am literally <laughs> shocked. My jaw just <laughs> dropped open. So... You know, I even talked about it with him before I did this, saying, you know, I want to enter this trial. Will this affect things? <laughs> so we are just, we are coexisting. There need to be legitimate concerns about anything you're putting in healthy people. I'm more reassured by the pace of the trial and the two-year follow-up that, that scientists are attending to the need 
to be sure about what they offer people. But I also think there is not another option for this coronavirus. And it is needed and it is part of how we will, I don't want to say get back to a normal life, but move on to a different, freer life. That's it for this episode of Podcast 19. If you have a question you'd like us to answer on the show, email us a voice memo at askpodcast19 at gmail.com. That's askpodcast19 at gmail.com. I'm Anna Rothschild. Our producer is Sindhuja Srinivasan. Chadwick Matlin is our executive producer. Thanks for listening. See you soon.